Good morning. We are back in Mark. So if you want to flip in your Bibles to Mark 12, verse 35 is where we're starting. So Mark 12, starting in verse 35 through 44, I'm going to read our passage first. And Jesus taught in the temple. He said, how can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? David himself in the Holy Spirit declared, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord. So how is he his son? And the great throng heard him gladly. And in his teaching, he said, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplaces and have the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts, who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. And he sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money in, into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums. And a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which make a penny. And he called his disciples to him, and he said to them, Truly, I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. This is the word of God and our passage this morning. So you can see that there are um, three sections that we're going to go through. The first one is uh, a question. The second section is a warning. And then the third section is a commendation. And I know it's been a while since we've been in Mark. Um, for those of you who uh, are recently joining us, we, we've been going through Mark all of last year, basically, and we took a, hi a hiatus, and um, starting this week, we're back in it, and we'll be back in it um, up until um, Resurrection Sunday. Uh, so just to kind of refresh us where we're at, the book of Mark is divided into three main sections. You have the first section, which is uh, chapters 1 through 8, which is recording Jesus's uh, ministry in Galilee. It, um, it focuses primarily on who Jesus, who Jesus was. Um, and then it culminates in chapter eight when, the, when Jesus asks the disciples, who do you say that I am? And Peter, if you recall, says, you are the Christ. You are the Messiah. But you'll also remember that Peter and everybody else um, at the time associated Christ and the Messiah with a sort of warrior king that was going to come and lead Israel out from under Roman oppression. They didn't yet understand that the Messiah, the Christ, was to be that, that suffering servant uh, that we, we read about in Isaiah 53. So then as they're walking to Jerusalem three times, Jesus reminds and tells uh, his, his disciples that he came not to be served but to serve and to die is a ransom for many. He tells us three, three times on the way to Jerusalem. This is chapters 8 through 10. And then chapter 11 is when he finally walks into Jerusalem. And the remainder of, of Mark is Jesus in Jerusalem. So chapter 11 begins with the triumphal entry. And cro uh, folks crowded on the streets as he uh, walked in on a donkey. And they said, Hosanna, or God save us. And this kicked off a, a, a debate, some conversations with the religious leaders there in the temple. So the Sanhedrin, which were comprised of the, um, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the scribes. And they had been trying to ask him trick questions, trying to catch him in what he was saying. Um, but Jesus was answering their questions without getting caught. He was answering them well. And we ended, this was, would have been, been last year, um, in verse 34, this is right before our passage. It says, no one dared ask him any more questions. So the questions had now stopped, and Jesus takes the lead with a question of his own. And the question is, how can the scribes say that Christ is the son of David? So our first point here this morning is the root and the branch. So we all are familiar with the term paradigm shift. It's an important change 
uh, that happens when the usual way of thinking about something or doing something is replaced by a new way of thinking about something or doing something. So here's an example. The internet in our lifetime is a paradigm shift. You know, my kids simply cannot imagine a world without Wi-Fi and Netflix and iPads. It's just unimaginable to them. Just like I can't really imagine a time before color TV or cars or electricity. But there was a time before electricity. And there was also a time before the New Testament was written. There was a time when the theology of God the Son wasn't really a concept. And in order for us to understand the section here that we're about to read, we need to put ourselves back in time in their shoes before the internet, before color TVs and cars, before the New Testament. And we need to think what Jesus was saying when, when he says, what do you all mean when you say Messiah or Christ? By the way, Messiah and Christ are synonyms, if you haven't caught that. I'm kind of using them um, interchangeably. So that's the question Jesus is asking here. Let's go ahead and read it. So Mark 12, verse 35. How can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? David himself and the Holy Spirit declared, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord. So how is he his son? How can the scribes say that Christ is the son of David? I'm going to walk us backwards through the book of Mark and into the Old Testament um, to, to point out verses that refer, refer to both Christ and the son of David so that we can start to make some connections. So in the triumphal entry, when Jesus first came to Jerusalem, we all remember people shouted, Hosanna, blessed is he who, who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessing is the coming of our kingdom of our father David our father David. So people are associating Jesus' coming into Jerusalem with the promise to David. And then, just before that, on the road to Jerusalem, if you remember Bartimaeus, he was that blind guy who was calling out. He wanted to see Jesus. He wanted Jesus to stop and, and give him sight. Do you remember what he was saying? Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. That's what he was calling out. And then in Mark 8, the question that Jesus asked the, the disciples. Who do people, who do you say that I am? And Peter said, you are the Christ. And then the very first line of the gospel of Mark says, the gospel of Jesus Christ, the son of God. So now let's go back to the Old Testament. Where are these words coming from? Where are these concepts coming from? So Jeremiah 23, verse five and six says, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when, I'll, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. So you have here about a prophecy about the son of David rising up to be king, and everyone will call him, the Lord is my righteousness. And then this one. This is Isaiah 11.1, 1, and I'm going to put it up here on the screen, and we're going we're to work through this. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. So just read that for a second. So do you see anything strange in this verse? Let's go ahead and walk through it. So you have, you have a stump of Jesse. Who, who is Jesse? Jesse is David's father. So you have a stump or a tree trunk. That's Jesse, David's father. And then you have a shoot that's going to come out of that trunk. That's David, right? Makes sense so far. But then what does it say? And a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. So you, you see, that's not how trees grow. I mean, I'm not a botanist, but from my understanding, uh, roots support the trunk, which supports the branches. You can't be both a branch and a root. They are two different things. And I'm also no um, genealogist, uh, but from my understanding of the way family trees work, you know, using this metaphor, it's saying that David's son, 
is before David's father. So the grandson is before the grandfather. Now, that's not how family trees work. You know, an offspring can't be an ancestor. They are mutually exclusive. This is a strange verse, don't you think? And this is the riddle that Jesus is asking them. Jesus asks the question in Mark, how can this be? You know, it, it was there, even though Jesus is alluding to it, um, you know, by quoting Psalm 110, this, this has always been in the, in the scripture that the Israelites were reading. And, and Jesus is pointing out this little seeming contradiction. So let's go back to our verse. So the Lord, so this is in, uh, uh, so going back to, to, to Mark 12, the Lord, that is God, said to my Lord, that is the Messiah, the Christ, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. So David calls him Lord, so how is he his son? Fathers didn't call their sons Lord in David's day. This Psalm 110 was written by David, and that's what Jesus is quoting here. Fathers didn't call their sons Lord in Jesus' day, and fathers don't call their sons Lord today. Now we look at this verse having read Colossians 1, which we, we started this morning reading, which is a perfect passage. He's the image of the invisible God. You know, the firstborn of all creation. But they, that wasn't written when Jesus was saying, telling the story. That wasn't yet written. We've read John 1, where it says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning, and all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made. We know that. We can look back and we see it, but they had not seen that verse yet. It hadn't been written. In fact, Mark is the first person to write a gospel. This is the very first gospel being written. And so, think about this. Jesus is, is uh, talking to these people who may have been, been um, some of them that were on the side of the road calling out um, King David. You know, blessed is he who comes in the name of our, uh, blessed is he, blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Jesus is saying, you guys have been calling me or referring to me as the Christ or the Messiah. You're, you're, you're saying that um, I'm ushering in the kingdom of David. What do you all mean when you were standing on the side of the road yelling that? Do you know what that means? And it wasn't lost on them that were listening to this that Jesus is implying that he's the Christ. If you remember the very first conversation that he has with the, the Pharisees and the scribes and the Sadducees was in regard to Jesus' authority when he flipped over the tables. And people asked him, by what right are you flipping over the tables in the temple? And Jesus didn't answer their question. He says, can you answer me? Was my baptism from God or, or was it from man? And they didn't answer that. So then he told the story about the landowner who, who rented out his, his um, farm to the, tenant, to the tenants, and they you know, grew their, their wine and all of that stuff, and then the landowner sent some servants to go collect the due, the rent, for renting out the land, and they kill the servants, and then he eventually sends his son, and the landowner, or the tenant, service, the tenant servants, kill the landowner's son. Jesus is kind of implying there, not so subtly, that God is the landowner, that the, the, the Pharisees and the scribes and the Sadducees are the tenant farmers and he is the son. So this isn't being lost on people, but they're not yet connecting the dots. Another thing, so I mentioned that, that um, Jesus is quoting here Psalm 110. Interesting little tidbit, Psalm 110 is the most quoted Old Testament verse in the New Testament. So just kind of tuck that away. Um, in ancient Israel, it was sung at the time of, um, it was a coronation hymn. So whenever kings were crowned, this would have been a song that they sung. But of course, it had been hundreds of years since the monarchy had, fell, had fallen. So this psalm in Jesus' day was reappropriated to refer to the Messiah, the Christ. That's why Jesus is using this to talk about this subject. And if you read through Psalm 110, which maybe in your community groups you guys can do that, I'm not going to do it now, but it talks through um, a lot of the themes of a warrior king executing judgment um, among the nations and filling them with corpses. But remember that Jesus, in the, the story about the tenant farmers and all of the stuff that he said to his disciples, is making it clear that he hasn't come to overthrow some sort of a government. He has come to die. They're going to kill me, he said to his disciples as they walked into Jerusalem, and nobody is understanding this. 
Jesus is saying that the Christ is more than King David. He's a descendant of David, but he's also superior to David. And that superiority is gonna be evidenced not through conquering Rome, it's gonna be evidenced through his death, his brutal death and his resurrection. And it's gonna be so much bigger than anything that the Israelites had in mind. It was gonna echo, reverberate through eternity past and eternity future. But right now, the people listening to Jesus tell this story, they didn't have a category to fit in what Jesus was saying. It would be like me trying to talk to somebody in the 16th, 17th century about the internet. They just didn't yet have the categories. One, one commentator writes, Jesus is repudiating the adequacy, not the accuracy, of assessing the Messiah by means of his Davidic descent. The point is that in Jesus' view, the Messiah is more than, not other than, the son of David. So, you know, we, we are reading this on the other side of the cross with the New Testament in mind. And we can see how hard it must have been for the the, the folks that were listening to Jesus tell the story to really understand what he's saying. But I wonder if we're not really understanding what's going on here. Jesus is there in front of the people. We are here singing songs like Agnes Day that says, Alleluia, alleluia, for the Lord God Almighty reigns. Worthy is the Lamb. Worthy is the Lamb. You are holy, holy. We are singing this to a God-man that is before time, eternal. Do we, well, I don't. I, I don't know about you guys, but I certainly don't always realize that. And in moments that that reality pricks me, I'm jealous for more of those moments. In that song this morning, worship team, that did it. That did it for me. We want to, we need to crave a deeper understanding of the reality of the truths of the doctrine that's being taught here. So, the doctrine of Christ shines brightly in these verses. And even on the side of the New Testament, our minds still can't fathom the depth and the beauty of verses like Philippians 2, which we also read, that though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God something to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant, being made in the likeness of man, and being found in the form of man, he humbled himself to the point of death, even death on the cross. But let me give you guys one more thing to think about. And this is kind of on the periphery of this verse. It might not be the main point, but I think that you'll find it motivating. I found it motivating while I was studying for this. Jesus starts this question with the doctrine of the authority of Scripture. Did you notice that? So in verse 36, he says in verse 36 that David, who again wrote Psalm 110, in the Holy Spirit declared, meaning that what David wrote down was inspired by the Holy Spirit. We have verses like 2 Timothy 3, um, 16 and 17, that all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. Jesus is quoting from the Old Testament, and he's showing everyone that while it wasn't completely revealed to them, the doctrine of God the Father, the doctrine of God the Son, and the doctrine of the Holy Spirit was there on the pages all along. And in Luke, remember on the road to Emmaus after Jesus is risen from the dead and there were those two disciples that were walking along and they were sad that Jesus died saying, how could this be? And Jesus shows up and nobody recognizes him or the, the two guys didn't recognize him. And then um, Jesus, our savior, our risen savior says, wasn't, wasn't it necessary that the Christ should suffer these things before he entered uh, and enter into his glory? And then beginning with Moses and all of the prophets, he interpreted to them and all the scriptures, the things concerning himself, and their hearts burned within them. So brothers and sisters, we have access to a book that shows us the mind of God and the secrets of the universe, breathed out by God. It's on our bedside tables. It's on our phones. It's on our bookcases. This knowledge is there for the taking. We need to read it. It is breathed out by God. Howard Taylor was uh, Hudson Taylor's son. Hudson Taylor, you guys might know, um, was a missionary in China. And his son wrote this about him. His son traveled through, uh, traveled through China with his father. And he writes this about his father. 
It was not easy for Mr. Taylor in his changeful life to make time for prayer and Bible study, but he knew that it was vital. Well do the writers remember traveling with him month after month in, normal, in northern China, by cart and wheelbarrow, barrow, with the poorest of inns at night, Often with only one large room for coolies and travelers alike, they would screen off a corner for their father and another for themselves with curtains of some sort. And then, after sleep at last brought a measure of quiet, they would hear a match strike and see the flicker of a candle over the little Bible in two volumes always at hand. From 2 to 4 a.m. was the time he usually gave to prayer, the time when he could be most sure of being undisturbed to wait upon God. That flicker of candlelight has meant more to them than all they have read or heard on secret prayer. It meant reality. Not preaching, but practice. The hardest part of the missionary career, Mr. Tyler found, is to maintain regular, prayerful Bible study. Satan will always find you something to do, he would say, when you ought to be occupied about that, if it is only arranging the window blinds. We've got a book that shares with us the mind of God. Let's not be so busy that we forget to cherish it, that we forget to even open it. Let's go ahead and move on to our next point. It shall not be among you. This is a, a warning about the scribes. If you remember a few months back in um, November or December, we talked through in Mark where um, the time that James and John asked Jesus if they could sit at his right and left hand. It's in Mark 10. Jesus had just told them for the third time that he was going to go to Jerusalem and die. And James and John, for whatever reason, thought now's the time we should ask him if we could sit at his right and left hand. But for whatever reason, they, they made their request. Um, but do you remember what Jesus said? This is in Mark 10, 42 through 45. And Jesus called to them and said to them, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many." So keep this verse in mind as we um, approach our next section, which is a warning to the scribes. Sorry, it's a warning not to be like the scribes. Let's read it. Mark 12, verse 38. And in his teaching, he said, Beware of the scribes, who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplaces and have the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts, who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. So scribes were big shots uh, in ancient Israel. They had seriously almost unrivaled authority. They were maybe kind of like seminary professors, but you got to remember that, that this was more of a theocracy at this time. So they were the nature of the way that Israel was governed. They were much more than just seminary professors. They were the shepherds that we read about in Ezekiel 34. They were the shepherds that were behaving just as was prophesied in Ezekiel 34. They fed themselves on the sheep. They didn't strengthen the weak, they didn't help the sick. They didn't seek out the lost. They were in it for themselves. And Mark lays out three characteristics of the scribes here. One is pride. The second one is greed. And then the third is hypocrisy. So let's start with pride. It, I think it's pretty clear here in the verses. So they dressed up to be noticed and to be recognized. And they were recognized. When they would walk into a room or if they walked next to you on the street back then, everybody would stand up as they walked into a room or walked by you in the street. And they liked walking into a party and everybody stopped talking and everybody, oh, the scribe is here, Mr. So-and-so. They liked that. Um, they would go into a, the synagogue. When they were in synagogue, they sat in a, it, it was kind of like this. They sat facing the congregation. You know, a, a seat of prominence. 
whenever they went to a party, they sat next to the host. Then we have greed. So um, they devoured widows' households. I mean, that's pretty straightforward what they were doing here. But so that, that term to, um, the, to devour was a technical phrase in Greek that actually meant they would bilk people out of their money. And so the commentators uh, all talk through like how this likely happened. So the scribes weren't like the Sadducees and that they weren't, they weren't generally rich. Uh, the scribes didn't get paid for being a scribe. Um, in fact, some scribes had to have day jobs. Um, but rather, scribes lived on donations from people. They had to find supporters. And they would sometimes exploit and abuse people's generosity. And as this voice points out, they would often exploit and abuse the most vulnerable, the widows. And so, yeah. And then there's this hypo the hypocrisy. So they would make a, a big show out of their prayers. They wanted everyone to know just how devout they were. Maybe because the more spiritual they appeared, the easier it was to get, you know, people to con contribute to their, you know, their, their scribe fund. But some of the, the um, commentators mentioned that. In Matthew, this, the same story is in Matthew, by the way. When he tells this story, he adds that they do all their deeds to be seen by others. So the scribes lived publicly for everyone to think a certain way about them. He also writes, you know, again, not talking to the scribes, but the people listening. Jesus said to those folks in Matthew, Mark, uh, Matthew wrote this down, to observe what the scribes say, but not what they do. So don't emulate these scribes. Remember, Jesus isn't talking to the scribes or the Pharisees. He's talking to people just like us, and he's saying, beware. Don't be like them. Don't use God as a pretense to use and take advantage of others. Watch out for pride and greed and hypocrisy in your own hearts. So let me draw out two quick points on these verses. First, these are, uh, you know, characteristics or categories of sins that aren't really as easy to identify as others. They're not as objective as others. So think of stealing, lying, sexual sin, murder. These are pretty black and white. When you take something that isn't yours, you are stealing it. It's objective. But pride and greed and hypocrisy is not always easy to identify in others. It's not always so, so easy to identify in our own hearts. And there, it's so much easier to excuse and justify these things. So do we dress a certain way because we want to show off? Do we want to show that we've got money or we've got prestige or we're a certain type of, of person? You know, that's a hard thing to, to say, to do. Or to, to, at least that's a hard person to judge in other people. Do we talk and act in such a way that people think more highly of us than other, others? Do we want to posture ourselves as more worthy of respect than, than our neighbors or our friends? And here's one, prayers. Do we pray differently in front of people than we do in private? Well, there's no one in the world that knows that other than you and God. But God knows it, and you know it. Are our prayers only a public exercise? Do we even pray in private? So you see, these things aren't necessarily black and white. And I think because of that, we're easily tempted to justify these behaviors. And it's harder for our brothers and sisters in Christ to hold us accountable to them. See, these sins and these tendencies, we can tuck away in the secret part of our heart. And it takes heart work to root them out. It takes the Holy Spirit to root them out. And it takes prayer, like the prayer that, that David prays in Psalm 139, where he says, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. We need God. We need to pray to God to help us see these sins in our life. Because we will so easily, we're, our flesh is dying for us to be just blinded to them. But the second point I want to draw out, draw out of this, and this is really what, what, what Bill said and prayed, this is really important. Those in leadership today really need to take uh, these verses into consideration. 
particular attention to the temptation to act like these scribes here. So, I mean, I, I don't know that there's much value in going through, you know, a list of all of the scandals that we hear about on the media of our Christian leaders across the world this last decade, the sexual abuse, the cover-ups, you know, monetary scandals, emotional abuse, and domineering leadership. So, I mean, we know those, and uh, we, we're aware of them. Um, but First Peter 5, 1 through 3, has an exhortion specifically to elders. It says, Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you do. And here it is. Not for shameful gain. Not for shameful gain. But eagerly. Not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. Us as elders, and I think this extends to deacons and ministry leaders and even parents, we need to pay extra attention to these verses. We've all been giving a, given a certain level of authority and responsibility in our spheres, and we can't be like the shepherds of Ezekiel 34 that feed on those we're supposed to be feeding. Mark ends this section. Did you guys catch this? They will receive the greater condemnation. That is a scary thought. Well, I guess maybe scary isn't the right word, but that is a stern warning for those of us that are in leadership. Beware. We shouldn't emulate the scribes. We should emulate Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant. I don't know if you guys have heard of David Brooks. He's a New York Times columnist. So he, uh, he wrote, a, um, he recently became a Christian, and he wrote about his conversion in this book called The Second Mountain. And before he wrote that book, he wrote a book called The Road to Character, in which he does these, these short little biographies about people that, that should be respected for the kind of character that they embodied. One of these, St. Augustine, was one of the, the biographies that he, um, he wrote on. And I, I want to read a quote from you from that book to show one thing, that while it might be difficult to, to clearly point out the sin of pride and greed and hypocrisy in somebody's life, we do know that when we do live lives of character, emulating Jesus, it is noticed. So here's the quote. It's kind of a long one. I think it's going to be up there. Sometimes you don't even notice this people, these people, David Brooks writes. Because while they seem kind and cheerful, they're also reserved. They possess the self-effacing virtues of people who are inclined to be useful but don't need to prove anything to the world. Humility, restraint, reticence, temperance, respect, a soft self-discipline. They radiate a sort of moral joy. They answer softly when challenged harshly. They're silent when unfairly abused. They are dignified when others try to humiliate them, restrained when others try to provoke them. But they get things done. They perform acts of sacrificial service with the same modest everyday spirit they would display if they were just getting the groceries. They're not thinking about what impressive work they're doing. They're not thinking about themselves at all. They just seem delighted by the flawed people around them. They just recognize what needs doing, and they do it. They make you feel funnier and smarter when you speak with them. They move through different social classes, not even aware, it seems, that they're doing so. And after you've known them for a while, it occurs to you that you've never heard them boast. You've never seen them self-righteous or doggedly certain. They aren't dropping little hints of their own distinctiveness or accomplishments. These are the people who have built a strong inner character, who have achieved a certain depth. And these people, at the end of this struggle, the climb to success has surrendered to the struggle to deepen the soul. These are the people we are looking for. Now, I read something like that, and I mean... I would love to be that kind of person. 
And what Ezekiel 34 is, is showing us is that while our leaders are never going to be the kind of leaders that um, we need them to be, our leaders need to strive to be like Jesus. But more than that, Jesus is the good shepherd now. So we are no longer dependent on our leaders as they were in the Old Testament. Now Jesus and the Holy Spirit is working directly in our hearts, shepherding us. So now the next point, the widow that was all in, and this is our final section. Mark 12, 41. And he sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums, and a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which make a penny. And he called his disciples to him, and he said to them, Truly, I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the office box, offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. Now Jesus sits in the temple treasury where they had these 13 offering boxes um, that people would put various offerings for contributions like the, um, the, the wood that the temple needed to, you know, to, to function, the incense. Uh, they needed money to buy the golden vessels that were used and then various sin offerings. So there's these 13 offering boxes and they're, they're made with this kind of tr trumpet-like thing on the top of them so that people can't get their hands in to steal the money. So let's try to imagine the scene. Uh, the temple treasury was in the court of the women which was about 40 meters by 40 meters wide. So about the size of a, uh, the width of a football field. Maybe a little bit smaller. Well, not maybe. I mean, a little smaller. But. Um, and as I understand it, there was a teller of sorts um, that, would, uh, that people had to go to first. And what they would do is they'd declare the offering that they were making. And then the teller would count the amount that they're going to give to make sure that they were donating the right amount. And there was this priest that was there that would look and actually, you know, examine the coins to make sure that they were um, genuine, you know, form of payment and that they were in alignment with the sacrifice that was being made. And then the priest would tell whoever's making the offering, you know, which box to put it in. And all of this was spoken out loud. Um, people could hear what was being said. So it's not like us that, you know, we donate online or we write a check and kind of drop it indiscreetly back in the box. Like we donate anonymously. They, it was not anonymous. When they would go in to give um, that gift, they would have to put it in that trumpet-like shape thing. You know what I'm talking about? Or, so it's like a, so it was called the chauffeur box because you know the chauffeur is the horn that they used to play. That's, it's a ram's horn. So it's shaped kind of like a trumpet. And you can imagine that when people are dropping their coins in there, you could hear it all down into the box. Kind of like the coin machine that we have at um, Food Lion. You know, people go in with that jug and and, you know, all that noise. It's loud. It's obvious what's going on. So let's envision it. It's kind of like that. And you have the rich man, and he's got this, these bags of coins, and folks are, you know, waiting behind him. And he goes up there, and the guy's like, great, I got behind a rich guy. The priest is counting all of this money. It's going to take me forever to do this. Finally, that's done, and the rich guy goes over to the trumpet, and he gets his bag, and he starts to dump it all in, and coins are you know, falling on the ground. He picks them up, and he, he throws it in the, you know, the offering box. And, you know, it was, it was kind of probably something like that. And then you have this widow. And she walks up and drops in hardly anything. Dee -dee. Hardly any noise. You know, probably less value than all of the coins that the rich man dropped on the ground. My, my grandma used to say this thing, this thing. Um, bless her heart. You guys know that phrase? Yeah. Well, it's not a blessing. Okay, when someone is singing the national anthem at like a local um, football stadium and they sing out of tune the whole time, ah, bless her heart. Yeah. Or when, you know, a little kid maybe scribbles on a piece of paper, um, you know, ah, bless his heart before you throw it, throw it in the, uh, the trash. Yeah. So you can imagine some people watching this widow saying, bless her heart. Look at her. Doesn't have a dime to give, but she still managed to scratch something together. It really is the thought that counts. And then they would go over to the rich man and they'd shake his hand 
And they'd say, you know, you and your friends, you're really keeping this place together. Can we invite you over to dinner? We just want to thank you. I mean, um, for all of the service that you've, you've given this whole community, where would we be without you? Thank you. Can you come over to dinner? Maybe even the disciples were thinking this. And Jesus clears it right up. So let me lay out a principle for us. And then I'll try to apply this to our lives. There is the economics of man, and then there is the economics of God. Remember in Psalm 50, verse 12, God says, if I were hungry, I wouldn't tell you, for the world and its fullness are mine. God doesn't depend one bit on our gifts to establish his kingdom. And our value as members of his family, as members of the universal church, doesn't depend one bit on how much money we give. But let's put it another way. It's not how much money we give that Jesus is pointing out here. He's highlighting how much it costs us. This is not to disparage those of us who donate large amounts of money. Here in a couple weeks, we're going to get to the story of the woman who pours the oil over Jesus' head. That's coming up. The ointment was worth 300 denarii, it says. And there were some people who saw this lady pour this oil over Jesus' head and said, what is she doing? That could have been sold and we could have fed the poor for months. That bottle of ointment, guess how much more valuable it was than the, the, um, the poor widow's offering? 38,000 times more valuable. But here's the thing. Jesus honors the lady who anointed him and this poor widow equally. The rich woman, he says, whenever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. The rich woman is honored for her gift, just like the poor woman is. So giving gifts uh, of large amounts of money to the church is good. But again, it's not how much we give, it's how much those gifts cost us. Mark writes that Jesus said here, truly, I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. This poor widow, she was all in. All in. I think some of us would like to get our hands on a calculator that would tell us if we're all in or not. You know, you, you go to Google, like what, donation calculator or something like that. We plug in our salary and our age and how many kids we have, our zip code, maybe how much we gave in the past, how much we intend to give in the future. And, and then we hit the button and it gives us a number and we say, I'll give, I'll give a little bit more than that. Okay. And then we go to church center and we plug it in and our, our donation plan for the year is done. I would like that. It would make this, this so much easier. We'd be done with it, all in. But that's not how it works. This is not a question of math, and we're inclined to turn this into a question of math. It has nothing to do with it. This is a question of the heart. We want to make this objective, but it is subjective. What does it look like for us to contribute out of poverty? Well, we can go to 2 Corinthians 8 for that. In 2 Corinthians 8, verse 1, this is Paul writing, he says, we want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, so these churches are in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us, earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. They gave themselves first to the Lord. The Macedonians, they were all in. They begged to give. Kins and I have a friend in Morocco, a couple actually. They used to live up in Lancaster. Um, they moved back from Morocco for a couple of years after having spent decades over there. They're originally from Latin America, 
And um, before we went over there, they mentored us. Um, so they, they talked to about, you know, their experiences as, as missionaries over there. When they, they told us, you know, what brought them over there and how it was when they first went. So it was years ago, as I mentioned, and they went over without really any job prospects. They didn't really have any substantial support. They were young and crazy, some people might say. He taught English. That's how they sustained themselves at first. And small world, he taught Kinza's brother English two decades ago. You know, before, way before I even met Kinza. We figured that out later because we all met up together, but um, small world, but not, not my point. About a year ago, he and his wife moved back to Morocco, but this time they went through a missionary organization. And in order to go through this organization, they had to, they had to secure a certain amount of, of funding, of donations. And so I was talking to him about this, and he said that he didn't know why that level of support was needed because he's never lived on that much money. So we met them last summer in Marrakesh, and the conversation came up about how they were doing financially and if they were lacking anything. And this man and his wife, they're just so humble and kind and wise and gentle, and he kind of exhorted me very nicely, very kindly. I didn't even realize I was being exhorted until I was like, well, you know. <laughs> so, he says, money has nothing to do with the work I'm doing over here. In fact, sometimes it's a hindrance. Most people here are poor, and Kins and I know that. You can see it. And here we're, and he says, here we minister to the poor. So I want to be poor. Wealth is a liability. It's not an asset. My friend is all in. I think of 2 Corinthians 8, 9. It says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. Or 2 Corinthians 9, Verse 22, to the weak, this is Paul saying, to the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might, serve, might save some. So I don't know my friend's financial situation really. But many their age are starting to think about retiring. They're meeting with financial planners, and many people much younger than, younger than them are starting to think about, um, you know, retirement. And, you know, this is really for me to hear and not for you. You know your heart, and I know my heart. Um, but you know what? I think about retirement a lot more than I'm sure he does, and I'm ashamed of it. I wonder if you, some of you here have lived this sort of life, a life with your eyes set on heavenly treasure, you know, throughout the whole time, a generous, faith-filled life, which towards the end, you find your 401k a little light. Lighter than it could have been for sure if you had lived differently, if you had given differently. And I wonder if you'd ever questioned your decision as you see prices and inflation go up and your income fixed or even decreasing. And I wonder if you ask, have I gone wrong somewhere? Did I make some mistake here? And I wonder if this poor widow questioned her decision after she was walking away from the box, dropping her last pennies into it, saying, am I, did I do, am I, am I off base with what I'm doing here? I can't imagine that that didn't cross the poor widow's mind who dropped in her last penny when she started thinking about what am I going to eat for dinner tonight? And I can't imagine that that cross doesn't, that, that idea doesn't cross my friend's mind over in Morocco. And I can't imagine that it doesn't cross some of your mind. Should I have been as generous as I have been with my life? And I hope and I pray that in these moments, the Holy Spirit steps in and says, oh no, sir, you have not made a mistake. Oh no, ma'am, you are not off base. I hope and pray that this comes to your mind. Remember when Jesus said to Peter, just after the rich young man walked away sad because he was too rich to give away all of his money. And Jesus says to Peter, truly, 
I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life but many who are first will be last and the last first the economics there's the economics of man and there's the economics of god and it and it flows both ways god does not need our money to get anything done and all the money in the world will do nothing to satisfy the thirst of our souls now right now on this side of eternity money will not quench our thirst ever and in the next life as we march into eternity all the gold and all the diamonds and all the sparker, sparkle and all of the bling that we could possibly imagine in this world, it'll be dulled to the point to where it is unnoticeable. Just dust, specks of dust that you see in the light when set beside the riches that await us. This poor widow, she was all in. Are we? As the worship team comes up, Let's pray the lyrics to the next song that we're going to sing. And you all can stand with me as I, as I pray. Father God, take our lives and our moments and our hands and our feet and help us to give those to you. Help us to be all in. Take our voice right now and help us sing to you, Lord. Take our lips and help us talk about you, Lord, at our workplaces and at our family, family dinner tables and to our neighbors. Take our silver and our gold and our wills and our hearts and make them yours. In Jesus' precious name I pray, amen.